duty we're at that time of the year in another committee hearing first I would like to recognize the staff of the meeting <clears throat> including Jonathan Shermer on teleconference network ledge finance Ms. Kelly Cunningham is not here yet, not here yet but will be committee staff Mrs. <clears throat> Lee Lack from did I say that right Lee Lake Lee Lake, Lee Lake. <laughs> from Senator Ellie's office Mr. Schilling from Senator Coghill Mr. Smith from my office we know the cell phone policy I don't have to reiterate that and um, we're going to have a discussion on the current recidivism and reentry efforts by the department and Mr. Taylor Commissioner Taylor would you like to come on up and and, and a brief overview of the, of the budget as and Mr. Chairman when it's appropriate in the agenda I just have one question for the commissioner as well you so right now right now would it fit okay because <laughs> um, I don't want I, I, I would forget it so sure. if you want to go ahead and ask it yes I want to make sure I get this in thank you mr. chairman um, commissioner apparently there's um, it's been brought to my attention that there's an acting director of institutions currently sure. and can you give us some time frame of when you will be appointing a permanent uh, director of institutions what what are the plans there in terms of time frame if you would please for the record my name is Ron Taylor I'm the commissioner for the Department of Corrections <coughs> and actually uh, Senator Ellis, uh, through the chair we actually have two vacancies there's my former position the deputy commissioner um, which was uh, Mr. Henderson's counterpart and then the acting um, director of institutions I am currently working on both of those positions there was a snag with uh, the institutional piece so we're trying to get the uh, deputy commissioner position filled first and so we're going through the process of doing that I, my time frame is any day that I could do it I would love to do it um, it's making sure we have the right person and that they will fit well with the team that we have established already mr. Chairman to the commissioner when you commissioner when you said working on you just mean in terms of recruitment or you're not reorganizing the the job or restructuring the the job duties or to the chair to uh, Senator Ellis uh, it'll depend on the person okay. um, we want to make sure that that person is going to be able to come in and and really be an asset to the direction the department is going into that's for the deputy commissioner position and we're still in negotiations in terms of the um, director of uh, institutions and what for me as a layperson does the director of institutions what is the main part of that job I mean it is it is it exactly what it sounds like it's exactly what it sounds like okay. overseeing the uh, institutional functions of the Department of Corrections of 13 institutions um, obviously there's going to be some overlap with administrative components the education vocational stuff that um, needs to be coordinated and certainly with our institutional probation officers there's some carryover with um, a chief probation officer also overseeing that so those all have to be coordinated um, inside the department okay. thank you thank you please proceed for the record my name is Ramon Henderson I'm the deputy commissioner of uh, corrections administrative section um, mr. chair your aide asked me to um, explain the changes that were made by the house correct and I'll, I'll do that um, as you know we had uh, reduced general funds in our budget of 4.1 <laughs> million dollars in anticipation of Medicaid expansion um, the house denied that reduction and they uh, placed back in our budget 4.1 million dollars of general funds so that's one change that was made <coughs> uh, the other change that was made is that the house um, took a reduction of 2.85 million dollars in general funds and um, replaced that with with um, designated general funds for the uh, FY16 PFD criminal funds so we had in our budget um, already taken that in, taken into consideration replacing general funds with PFD criminal funds 
but there was a additional amount of $2.85 million that um, OMB had um, set aside for a capital project and that capital project uh, was denied by the House and they placed the $2.85 million in our budget and reduced the general funds. And then there's one other thing which I don't have with me. There's intent language that the House passed. You have that? You don't have it? Okay. <clears throat> You're going to have to read that on my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chair, if I will, the, um, the intent language was that the Department of Correction work with the Department of Public Safety, Thank you. Administration, Law, and the court system to identify solutions to reduce prisoner transport costs as community and regional jail contracts were reworked. Okay, thank you. Mr. Oh, Chair, those, those are the, the, all the changes that were made by the House. Thank you. So now we'll go to the second part and you can continue. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, page two has the department's mission, which we always go over in terms of the three-part mission of the department that's found in the Constitution, the secure confinement, reformative programs, and then a process of supervised community reintegration. And if you look on page three, I provided you with a real basic at a glance of the department. We're one of six uh, states in the nation that operates as a unified correctional system. In FY 2014, we booked in over 37,000 bookings into our facilities that includes or is representative of about 22,600 unique individuals that's what those bookings make up it also includes 3300 uh, title 47 which are the um, involuntary commitments that uh, for alcohol that get admitted into our institutions and then as of uh, June 30th we had about 6200 uh, persons that were either in one of our facilities, <clears throat> a halfway house, or on electronic monitoring, and another 6,000 that were on uh, probation and parole. We have uh, 15 community jails that's not on here, but they represent about 157 beds. And then our capacity for our electronic monitoring is six communities with about 475. We're currently at 457. And in our CRCs, has, there's eight total halfway houses and we have 819 beds. Throughout our system, we're seeing several trends that I'll go over. And it's, it's not uncommon, the trends that we've been talking about, because we've been saying these things for the last few years, an increasing nonviolent population. Right now, our nonviolent population is about 64%, and the violent population is 36%. That's a, a pretty huge increase from 48% nonviolent just 12 years ago. The length of stay in our facilities has actually shifted. Um, where we had a, a number of persons within our facility in the 13 months to 24 months, that shifted out to the 37 or more months where more people are actually coming into our facilities and they're staying a lot longer. We have more females coming into the facility. They're almost double the rate of males in the last four or five years in terms of growth rate. Commissioner, <clears throat> excuse me. So when when they come, are, do, do we, are we doing intake and assessment and, and trying to, what, what's causing the trends? We're doing intake, uh, uh, Mr. Chair, and assessment, but in terms of what's causing the trend, I'll talk about that here in a few minutes. Thank you. Continue. I'll just be quiet. <laughs> That's okay. Great questions, actually. And it shows that uh, that you thought about this, too, in terms of um, the complexity of this. And really, everyone wants the same thing. I mean, if we can start identifying those trends that are bringing people inside of our institutions and keeping them there, those are the things that we want to target. We have a greater unsentence population. Uh, today, we have... 39% of our population, almost 40%, that's unsentenced. That's up from 27%, again, 12 years ago. And then we have older inmates that are continuing to uh, increase and grow in our, they're, they're basically outnumbering the younger inmates two to one. So with the older inmates come increased costs, 
In fact, just over the last year, our medical costs has increased by about 3.2%, and since 2005, our medical costs has increased by almost 40%. That's another area that we've struggled with in terms of trying to contain those medical costs, and I think our director, um, our health care administrator, have done an incredible job trying to manage those contracts and have stable contracts in place that hold the cost as much as possible. And um, we've tried our best to contain it, but you can see with, with the cost continuing to grow like that, that's difficult to get our arms around. The other thing that we've noticed as part of our trends is minority populations are well overrepresented in corrections, and that's, that's not startling or new. I mean, Alaska Natives have been two to one overrepresented. But what for me uh, is startling is the African-American population in our system that's overrepresented three to one. This next slide on page five is the one that um, you were asking about, Mr. Chair, in terms of have we began to identify some of the things that are driving our prison growth? And that's correct, we have. We're looking at the increase in the number of pretrial or unsentenced inmates. And, of course, I've already mentioned the nonviolent population, how that continues to increase, average length of stay, and then the one that you, we didn't talk about earlier, which is probation violations. Probation and parole violations have typically been near the top of the readmissions into our institutions. And I, I would say that one of my real concerns as we start getting back toward the back of talking about the probation and parole is looking at the number of people that actually decide to just go in and do the rest of their time rather than remain on probation and parole. I think we're seeing an increase in that, and that is troubling when someone feels it's better for me to go in and do the rest of my jail time than it is for me to stay in the community and finish out probation and parole. Slide six, I just thought I'd provide to you in terms of the, the, the daily cost, which I'm sure we can all recount um, on a regular basis in terms of what's presented to the legislature. Um, we have the institutional hard beds at about $142 a day. Our halfway houses just under 90. Electronic monitoring about $23 a day. And then probation and parole supervision just under 8 bucks a day. So I'm actually going to do in this presentation two different things. One, I'm going to talk about what uh, report that our um, former deputy commissioner worked on with the trust and the many departments that were involved in that as a result of HB 266, which you will see on page our slide 7. And it was the legislative intent last year that the departments of correction, health and social services, Labor and Workforce Development, the Trust, Housing, Alaska Housing and Finance, and the court system look at ways that we could come together, continue to do what we've already do been doing in terms of working together, but with a real focus on improving treatment and outcomes for those persons who are being released from our custody. Um, the report itself was just completed last month, and I believe that um, uh, Carmen Gutierrez gave a full report to both sides in terms of what she found in that, so I'm not going to really spend a whole lot of time covering that. What her report actually did was looked at all of the departments outside of the Department of Corrections and what they were doing. So what I want to also report to you is what we have been doing as a Department of Corrections. In her report, the things that um, she recommended was one for Pew to come in, and I think that that's pretty close to occurring. In fact, I have a meeting next week with uh, Pew Center in the States, and if the letter to invite Pew to come in has not been signed, I'm pretty sure that that's going to be signed. I, I know that there was a commitment from all three branches of government to sign that letter to invite them to come in. And when Pew comes in, they're going to look at um, the data from the Departments of Corrections, Public Safety, the courts, and they want to do the same thing that we've been trying to do, which is a much more comprehensive job of analyzing what are the real drivers of prison growth within our system. 
And then what lessons can we learn from other states? There are best practices that other states are doing in terms of uh, what they call justice reinvestment. What can we be doing here as part, part of our policy development? Uh, excuse me, Commissioner. I'd like, like the record to reflect that Senator Coghill has been with us. Sorry for being late, Mr. Chairman. And then what Pew is going to do is make the final recommendations and findings uh, in their report. And so a big push for the uh, recidivism reduction plan was to invite Pew and not to really get out in front of Pew, but to um, support Pew in the efforts of the data collection and to support Pew in terms of some of the things that we already know. It's going to be in, in alignment with what Pew is going to recommend as part of their findings. So I want to just spend some time now talking about the DOC process, and that starts on page 8. And Mr. Chairman, yes, just a point there before we move on. Commissioner, I met with a few folks today and my staff and Senator Coghill's staff, and um, we're very excited about the prospect and the willingness and positive attitude on the part of this new administration toward this project uh, and the technical assistance that's coming to us and the work plan for this coming year and the prognosis for some good work together uh, in the next legislative session based on the Pew recommendations and the coalition were able to keep together or to build. They talked, the Pew folks in my office today talked about the big data dump that they're expecting. Are you all fully prepared, ready, willing, and able to provide all that data that they need for their analysis project? I assume that you're ready to turn things over to them in a transparent way so that they can get started on at least the DOC portion of the project. Through the Chair of Senator Lawless, um, I have an MOU in my email that I'm going to sign. Okay. And um, we're, we're willing and ready. Able, we're, we're dealing with the able piece to make sure that we have um, all of the data that we can supply to them. Okay, excellent. That was the answer I was looking for. And I, I won't say anything about the past. The past is, is history. I'll just say this, Governor Walker interrupted our presentation and said, give me the letter I want to sign before we'd even finished with the presentation about the Pew uh, analysis project. So uh, this executive branch and legislative folks are ready to move forward. And I'm, it's very gratifying that we're finally to this point because it's, it's largely about your department and helping you do complete the mission <coughs> or serve the mission here on your, on your slide. So get ready for the data dump because that's the next, that's the next big step. Through the Chair to Senator Ellis, thank you and Senator Coghill for both of your commitment to, to this project too. I know that you have both over the past few years focused heavily on trying to bring Pew in. And so, um, again, thank you because we know that as, a, as an overall criminal justice system, it's going to help shape how we move forward for our criminal justice system in the future. So in terms of the DOC reentry process, it starts with eight. And, and this is actually a model on eight and nine that was developed by a former Alaska DOC person who worked for us about 20, 22 now, 22 years ago. And it's a transitioning from prison to community. And it's three phases, seven decision points. Those three phases are pretty simple. How do we get people ready when they come inside the institution? How do we help them go home? once they've been inside the institution or are ready to release, and then how do we keep them in the community? I think for us, the struggle that we've had is, we I always joke, half-jokingly, I should say, I say we do a good job of locking people up, but in terms of releasing and keeping them in the community, that's where I really believe that as a department, a lot more effort needs to go into those two areas in terms of can we do a better job of transitioning people out and once they're out, do a better job of keeping them out. The actual model is based on seven uh, phases. And in the institutional phase, you'll see the first two, which is exactly what, um, um, Mr. Chair, you asked about earlier. Do we do an intake and an assessment? The first phase of the model is the intake and assessment process. So let's go to, let's go to page 11. Because what it, this really talks about is how do we get people ready. And what I would like for you to just focus on is 
you could see our number of bookings. And it's not surprising that our bookings continue to increase significantly over the past years, especially when we lost a lot of our support for programming and our whole direction was focused on um, confinement on the institutional side and enforcement on the probation and parole side. Senator, were you going to ask? Nope. So let's hold that thought for a minute. So, all right. So you, we we can look at the graph, mm -hmm. and you're you're saying a direct correlation is preventative dollars being pulled back has driven the increase. Did is that what you said, Mr. I, Chair? I didn't directly say that, but but yeah, I I think that we're seeing this is exactly why we're asking Pew and why we've taken the task in terms of looking at reentry and recidivism reduction because what we're seeing is this corresponding bookings has everything to do with our increase in our recidivism rates that was going on as well. More people coming back inside of our system and not doing a good job in keeping them out and a big piece of that was a lack of programming that we had and I'd also say in terms of just the philosophy of the department at that particular time which was focused on confinement and enforcement okay I <clears throat> I believe I'm not speaking for either one of these gentlemen on the right or the left but me I want to see you shutting prisons down in 10 years because there's nobody in them and I, I think that we're all trying to get there you know and I'm hoping this data dump and and uh, can help us find those programs that do work that aren't work that aren't being funded now thank you well mr. chair I I won't go as far as saying close all the prisons down I, I didn't say close them all I said start shutting prisons. I, I can see shutting some prisons down I can see us um, doing a better job of ensuring that those people that need to be in prison are in prison. Mm -hmm. Those that don't need to be in prison, we need to do a better job of finding them out, of, getting them outside of our, our institutional setting and into something that's going to uh, be more productive for them and for us as a society. So in terms of the, the what we're seeing is our bookings are going down, but we're also seeing our recidivism rate going down, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So the first phase of, of this process is the assessment and classification. So <coughs> what we really want to do here as part of this first phase is identify who these persons are that are coming inside of our institution, look at their housing risk level or security risk level to see where do we need to place them. But the, the other thing that we haven't really done a good job of is assessing their risk for reoffense and making sure that we identify what brought them into the institutions in the first place and looking at the needs that they present when they come inside the institution. Um, Senate Bill 64 was passed last year and a big focus of that was to look at the risk needs component of our department so that anybody that was sentenced to 30 days or more would have a risk needs assessment that was done on them while they were in our custody and that's a big portion of what we're moving toward over the next year in terms of the risk needs assessment piece of this. Question? So you see where we talk about our initial screening in terms of medical and mental health and then our, our, our pre-screening, which is our Prison Rape Elimination Act, education and parenting. We're looking at those quick things that we know we need to address up front. And we're also looking at being able to house people in the same custody level so that it would lessen the amount of issues that we're going to face from a security standpoint inside the institution. And, and what we've done in terms of that housing by, by uh, custody level is to place a greater emphasis on behavior and programming. So we want to make sure that we link people to programming and we want to make sure that we're addressing their behavior but showing them that you must go through programming and be actively participating in this if you want privileges that you would have normally gotten like 
commissary and other things that we've gotten in the, in the past. And then we look at our different assessments. Our primary assessment is our level of screening inventory, the LSIR, which looks at risk and needs, and then these other secondary assessments based on the risk and needs that we have that look at sex offender, education, substance abuse, mental health, criminal thinking, and anger management. <clears throat> so the goal of this is pretty simple on page 14, which is you identify what the risk is. The higher the risk, the more you want to devote your time and energy to that higher risk person. You find out what they need to change or reduce or even address the risk that they come into the facility with by targeting the criminogenic needs that if we do a better job of dealing with those needs, the chance of those persons uh, not coming back is greater. And then how do we respond? Make sure that we have the right mix of programming for those persons who are in our institution and do a better job of connecting them on the outside when they're released. Which brings us to the next area, which is the programming, which we skimmed over in terms of the criminal attitudes programming, the education parenting. Now, one of the things that I will say about our programming is we've had um, our performance review done on the programming. The department has one of the most comprehensive programming systems in the nation, and we're very proud of that. Can we be doing more? Absolutely, we can be doing more. But I want to make sure that what we're doing is the right mix of programming that we have in our institutions and that it actually addresses the needs of those persons who are in our system. So then how do we do a better job of transitioning them out from our facility? Once we've got them in now, we've got to get them out. And that starts on page 17 with the offender management plan. We need to make sure that uh, the persons that are being released from our institution actually have an individualized plan that looks at their risk, their needs, and their strengths. It's actually a guide for them as they go back into the community, but it's also a guide for the community for them being released back into their areas. Um, you'll see here in a few minutes as we talk about it, there are limited numbers that we have control over once they get released from the institution. So a big piece of what we're going to require as part of this transitional phase is the communities now have to step up and they have to become active stakeholders in those persons who are actually being released back to their community. So on 18, it talks about the different community inreach that we're working on with our community partners, looking at housing, employment, and job skills. And, and Mr. Chair, obviously, when you were with the Department of Labor, um, you started something that we have continued to expand upon in terms of employment and job skills in our institutions. I think for us, um, outside of the tenant-based rental assistance program that we have with Alaska Housing, that's got to be pretty strong in terms of what happens inside the Department of Corrections. Um, certainly behavioral health expanding um, that access to um, substance abuse and behavioral health services in our institution as well as into the community that I know that you were actively involved in, Senator Ellis. And then um, looking at other things in terms of benefits that our persons have once they come into the institution that we need to reconnect them with before they're leaving. And this is something that the Department of Corrections can't do on its own. This is something where we have to invite partners into our institutions in order to be able to deliver these services. The fourth phase is the release decision-making. How do we actually send people back into the community? And for us, I think this is, or at least I would say for me personally, this is something that we have struggled with in terms of the amount of work that we place on our institutional probation officers to get someone released from our system. We have really made that very complicated that we're going to have to do a much better job of streamlining and figuring out a better way so that when we do one packet, that person can be released to no matter what, whether it's the halfway house, electronic monitoring, or some other community placement. On slide 20, this is what I was talking about. Now we're looking at the number of people 
that we actually release from our institutions. And what was startling to me when I started really digging into this, only 25, 24 percent of the persons that actually get released from our institutions are going on felony probation and parole. That means 75, 76 percent of the people that are being released from our institutions, and we have over 13,000 releases a year. So 76 percent of those 13,000 releases <coughs> are going back to the community without any formal supervision whatsoever. Mm. For us then, but we're held accountable for that as a Department of Corrections if there is any person who's coming back through our system again, we're saying, okay, you're not doing your job. Well, we, again, need the community to step up to recognize that we don't have control, custody, or care over that 75, 76 percent that are going to be released into our community. For the 24, 25 percent that we do, we're actively working on that. But we really need the community engaged in terms of how are those persons going to be released back to the community and what efforts are we going to do to partner together. That's why we want to give them access to our offender management plan so that they know who's coming back into their community so that they can start providing services. We release about 377 convicted felons a year back into our communities. Mr. A month. Chairman. I'm sorry, a month. Mr. Ellis. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So, Commissioner, when you talk about engagement of the community, how does that go on now? Do you send an email to all the faith community, the church leaders, uh, to say we need your help, or to all the nonprofits in Anchorage? I imagine Anchorage is where a lot of the release uh, occurs, uh, just on sheer magnitude of the concentration and the numbers. But how, or do, do you wait for? The mayor of Anchorage to approach you or some do-gooder church or nonprofit to step forward and say we would like to practice our Christian charity? How does, how does it work in the real world? Through the chair of Senator Ellis, I mean, that's a great question. That's what we struggle with. We okay. haven't been, we've been really reluctant to let people inside the institutions to work. We've been basically saying <laughs> to them, you can deal with them once they get released into the community. And except for a few programs that we've allowed inside of our institutions, like Alaska Native Justice Center and some other community groups, that's, that's pretty rare. Um, unless they are connected with the, um, with the Department of Labor, um, Housing, or the Trust, those other community groups, that's what we're working on right now to say how do we do a better job of giving them access to the Department of Corrections. So, Commissioner, is that a culture thing or is it law? Uh, as far as letting new interests. Mr. Chair, I would say that it's probably past practice, cultural thing that we've done in terms of uh, of, an, of a correctional system. Senator Coghill? <clears throat> Having been a part of one of the faith-based ones, one of the things is uh, the, if you're going to go in and volunteer to work with people to help them uh, uh, get prepared for the outside uh, well, when they finish their uh, time in jail. Uh, it's a population movement issue. The, uh, it has to be orchestrated fairly closely. And uh, uh, so what we found was <clears throat> that uh, timing was tough because you have to move population people around in order to have a group that uh, can, for example, if you had a uh, a group situation where you had 10 or 12 people together, uh, it, uh, it's inconvenient to the uh, uh, the probation, I mean the officers there. And so that is part of the cultural problem you have to keep working through is the space and time. So. Uh, and that is, that's the big issue and, uh, and each facility probably has its unique challenges there. But uh, it's something worth working through because there are lives changed. I've seen it, you know, firsthand myself. So. But I know that uh, for, for the management of a facility, it's a, it's a problem. Through the chair of Senator Cog, you're, you're exactly right. This, this is part of what we struggle with. How do you balance that? Because if we're saying we want the community to engage, we've got to be more willing to partner with them and to give them access. Um, does it have to be every community group? Absolutely not. But we certainly need to make sure 
that the right community groups that they can start the engagement with or connect it to so that they can get access to the other services once they're in the community that um, all groups may not be able to come in in the beginning but there's a subset of that group that can come in to provide those services so how do we get them to stay home then and on page 22 talks about our supervision and services we've got 13 field offices uh, probation offices what we're seeing is our caseloads continue to increase they've increased since 2002 by almost 37 <coughs> percent again our, our Alaska pop, uh, Alaska native and non-native populations continue to grow and we're seeing the same trend in terms of probation and parole that we see in the institution where more of the older population are on probation and parole than those that are um, younger and I talked about this earlier in terms of probation and parole being near the top of the readmissions to prison and I know that the department and probation and parole in particular has done a great job in shifting the focus from enforcement where we are simply interested in locking people back up for violations to focusing more on collaboration and successful outcomes the biggest thing that we need to focus on in probation and parole um, at this point will be looking at <laughs> graduated sanctions and how do we incorporate them based on the risk uh, that that person poses to the community or the risk to reoffend rather than just setting up a set of sanctions that does not correspond to the risk level that they present to the community and then 24 and 25 talks about the work that we've been doing over the last five years or so in terms of uh, increasing probation and parole completion where more people coming into our system are being successful on probation and parole and then looking at our recidivism rate on, on uh, page 25 in terms of watching the numbers uh, continue to go down of those uh, in our system and reducing that recidivism we the discharge and aftercare on page 26 which is which is really what we've been talking about in terms of once they're discharged from our communities who I'm sorry from the institutions who's going to take care of them even when they're discharged off of probation and parole we need to make sure that there's somebody responsible for, for linking them to services and providing those services to them in their communities there's some natural supports that are already occurring in the faith-based communities in our Alaska Native communities we just need to become more educated on that and ensure that there is more coordination with those natural groups already in the communities that we're not tapping into right now we have five community coalitions right now that are pretty active the one in Anchorage Fairbanks Dillingham Kenai Juno and Matsu and you don't have the the uh, the next couple of slides that I want to present to you but what I was going to tell you about was some of the findings that um, our former deputy commissioner found in terms of maintaining the support for the programming that we have working on expanding community uh, substance abuse programming and then working collaboratively with those community coalitions that really uh, may be a fiscal issue that I know that it was part of her report that she submitted and then the other ones that are that are really no fiscal issue for us which is there's a criminal justice commission already in operation we've already um, invited Pew to come into our state these things are not costing us any money and we need to take full advantage of those as part of our next steps to ensure that we're all working together and moving in the same direction Mr. Chairman Senator Ellis Commissioner can we just go back to the um, that growing expense of the old and the sick um, in previous uh, iterations of the finance subcommittee we've talked about what other states do and trying to find best practices or and people have asked the question before if someone's old and sick at at uh, Spring Creek you know uh, in the maximum security and dying of cancer or some other fatal disease when do they go to hospice or when do they stay there or when are they transported to facilities in Anchorage um, I guess you've been through all of that to try and save expenses 
um, for the department, but is there anything new or anything on the horizon that we, a court would allow us to do? Nobody wants to see the, the murderer be, you know, let out of prison to go to hospice. That seems softer than staying in solitary confinement, but just, I don't want to go on too long, but is there anything new there or anything that needs to be tried? To the chair of Senate, I don't think there's anything new. I, I think we've done a better job of coordinating, for example, with the parole board for those that we could get out on special medical parole or discretionary parole that um, we may not have allowed to go out into the community before or uh, electronic monitoring that we connect them to services and we're looking at their risk level and, and doing this on an individualized basis. I think we've done a better job of that coordination, but that's not a huge uh, amount of people that we're going to um, let out through those avenues. Okay. Oh, and, and there is a position, thank you, sir. There's a position that we have a medical social work that has helped to coordinate those types of releases where we can do it safely and responsibly so that they're not a risk to the community when we when we let them out. Okay. Thank you. Senator Cargill. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for all your work. And Thank I you. know the, uh, uh, the population you get to deal with uh, quite often uh, comes your way whether you're ready for them or not. So uh, we, we greatly appreciate that. There are several things that we're going to be uh, working with you on to try to, to help. Electronic monitoring is one of them. Uh, but um, I know basically what the costs are, but what I don't know and I probably should understand better is uh, how the uh, parole officer, uh, probation officer, and you guys uh, within your system hold people accountable who fail under the electronic monitoring. and. It, is it a uh, minimal cost? Is it something that we need to be aware of? Uh, I mean, I know it costs money uh, to put them on, but it saves money from what the regular jail time is. But there's that accountability cost, and uh, is it been something significant, or how, how are we doing there? To the chair, Senator Coghill, I don't know that it's been significant. I think a person that we've been very um, good at selecting those persons to go out on electronic monitoring. Um, I think you'll see their success rate, what is it, 85? It was about 90%. I know that we've, we've expanded that, so I want to say it's still pretty high, and it's much higher than our success rates would be in other areas in terms of what we're doing. Um, those persons that have a significant violation, they're going back into the institutions where they will stay for some period of time before we will um, give them another opportunity, if we give them another opportunity, depending on the violation. I think that they have more of an incentive, and, I, I, and electronic monitoring, our staff there do a very good job of, of staying on top of them on a weekly basis um, to ensure that they're meeting the goals of electronic monitoring and that they're actively doing the things that we need them to do with programming, working, and um, staying in the community. So, Mr. Chairman, on electronic monitoring, uh, we're limited to uh, places where uh, that control unit can work. So that's Fairbanks, Anchorage, Matsu. Uh, what are the places where we start losing the ability to use that? To the chair of Senator Coghill, um, I'd have to get you some information on that, but we, we've actually expanded that quite a bit. We're using it in Barrow and Nome and, and other places okay. throughout the state that we're actually using uh, electronic monitoring on. Probably our, our growing uh, communication network. And uh, uh, the other thing that uh, I, I wanted to ask, and since we're trying to talk budgets. Uh, last year, I was uh, actually tagged as uh, one of the guys that wanted to spend so much money because uh, probation officers uh, was the big deal then. Uh, but one of the things that I became uh, or have been aware of down through the years is uh, the movement of population <coughs> to and from court uh, and those types of things. Who bears the cost of that? Is something the DOC uh, bears the cost of? Is that something the courts bear the cost of? Or how, how do we look at that? 
In, in terms, uh, through the chair to Senator Coggill, in terms of the prisoner transportation, mm -hmm. which you're talking about, there are some costs that we bear, especially those that we're moving internally within our system. But once they're moving back and forth to court, public safety actually bears that cost. That's in their budget. Okay. All right. So we can't clip you there. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> just looking for places. Where, we're, we're having a serious time with our budget here, and so I'm looking for everywhere I can shake loose a, a dime or two from you. So. Uh, the uh, the connection between courts and jails for uh, arraignments and things like that, we're still being able to do that electronically, uh, video screen. Has that uh, is that grown in popularity? Is there problems with it? Uh, is there something we can do more there? Through the chair of Senator Coghill, I think we can do more. Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about that in terms of our community jail um, contracts and being able to look at that as an avenue. Certainly getting the courts public safety involved in the community jails discussion has heightened that for all of us um, we're certainly looking for ways that we can um, ensure that there's no problems on our end in terms of connectivity but we also ha have to be cognizant of the bandwidth issues mm -hmm. that these communities are going to be up against as well so and then one of the things that has always bothered me uh, and this goes back to the days where uh, uh, I had programs uh, that I worked with in the jails as a volunteer. Uh, many volu volunteers are plagued with the fact that you have to move population because of pretrial issues. And that's going to be a, a, a programmatic problem with uh, just getting some of these uh, communities uh, to reach into the, uh, the jails with you. Uh, is, have you what what do we what can we do to slow that population movement down, or do we do we look for centers where uh, we uh, have uh, some of these programs for uh, pre-release, for example? Uh, uh, how do how do we uh, get them tagged so that population movement doesn't become a problem of kicking the uh, the the willing participant out of practice, you know, out of practicing with. Uh, uh, say uh, whatever, give, just name the program, whether it's uh, a drug rehab or just name it. Uh, but that has been a problem. That's an ongoing problem, it looks like to me. To the chair of Senator Coghill, um, that, that is going to be our challenge moving forward. How do we ensure that um, as we shift our population around, especially dealing with more nonviolent people in our system and a higher proportion of unsentenced persons in our facilities, how we be, do a better job of ensuring that when they go out to electronic monitoring or through the halfway house that they have the programming and that continuity of programming. Those are some of the things that we're looking at right now to ensure that that continues. And Mr. Chairman, just, <clears throat> just an, uh, an observation of my work. At the facilities, I think you do a, a fairly good job of, uh, of, of holding people accountable we start losing that when we go to halfway house because we want people to work. Uh, it's a very fluid population, and uh, then the accountability, because of that fluidity, begins to drop, and we begin to see other problems arise in the halfway houses. Um, is that just a, a something we have to continually work at uh, tighter controls on, or is there a systemic thing that we need to be working on uh, in that? Through the chair of Senator Coghill, I think the first thing is to make sure that we're doing all that we can to support them and, and um, ensuring that they're giving us what we need when we place people in there and to make sure that we are placing the right people <coughs> in there. I think that that may have something to do with it as well. Okay. I'm still looking for the dime, so I'll keep working. <clears throat> I'm looking to clip you too. So. <laughs> In a good, in, 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 we're in a good way, Thank so you, you can put more money into this pre preventative medicine. Um, Mr. Chairman, just on that last point about the halfway houses, you all have reviews and inspections and all those audits and all those kinds of things that go on to make sure that things are on the up and up, because there are halfway houses that have reputations in the community as dens of iniquity and that there is corruption and drug dealing and prostitution on the premises. And then there are others that are a tight ship, run like a military operation, 
and things are pretty darn good and you're getting your money's worth. Um, so you have some sort of system for that to catch up with people eventually, right? To clean up some of the bad actors. Peter Chair, Senator uh, Ellis, absolutely we do. And we're going to uh, look at more controls that we can put in place that will help us in those areas. Good. I'm sure it's an ongoing operation, but uh, we can always do better. We can always do better. Yeah. Follow up? No, I'm good. Okay, now going back to, I'm looking for ways to clip you too, so in a good way, right? Mm -hmm. So so we can use that money for preventative medicine. Um, I just <clears throat> spent probably had a 45-minute discussion a little earlier today on your budget, and we're going to, over the course of the summer, and now's not the time to have it, um, when we start working with our subcommittee, working with you hand in glove, uh, looking for more efficiencies and and but I just want to tee it up for you is as I want to really have a good discussion about Point Mac and what we can do with food there on a year-round basis to save monies within the, the prison and and I know just enough to be dangerous but we can ha get into some good discussion here over the summer and you can educate uh, this committee on uh, on some pathways forwards because I think there might there could be some savings there and I'm looking forward to having those discussions. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And I'd invite you and the committee members, and any time that you would like to go out to Point Mac, be more than happy to escort you out there yeah. and allow you to leave. Yeah. Thank you. I've been out there a couple of times okay. already, so I've got a pretty good overview, and I know some of the guys that work out there So, on, for the <clears throat> corrections department. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, any other questions today from my committee, our committee? It's not my committee, the People's Committee. Um, seeing none, thank you, Commissioner. Thank you, sir. Our next Corrections Finance Subcommittee meeting is scheduled for Wednesday, March 25th, 5 p.m. here in the Belts Room when it's our intention to consider any proposed amendments and the final consideration to the Department's budget. It's uh, 5.53. And I hereby adjourn today's meeting of the Department of Corrections, Senate Finance Subcommittee. We're adjourned.